I'm Gilbert Gottfried, and this is Gilbert Gottfried's Amazing Colossal Podcast. I'm here with my co-host, Frank Santo Padre, and we're once again recording at Nutmeg with our engineer, Frank Verderosa. Our guest this week is a legendary Hollywood press agent who broke into the business at the tender age of 19 and within two years found himself working alongside luminaries like Gary Cooper, Marie Chevalier, Audrey Hepburn, and Billy Wilder. In his six-decade career, he worked with, befriended, and influenced the careers of well over 500 performers, including Paul Newman, Barbara Streisand, Gene Hackman, James Mason, Maximilian Schell, Elizabeth Taylor, Peter Ustinov, Clint Eastwood, both Kirk and Michael Douglas, and Cary Grant. He is also credited with inventing the Oscar screener, bringing well-deserved attention to films like Annie Hall and The Conversation. In addition, he's worked on publicity campaigns for dozens of historic movies, including Bonnie and Clyde, Spartacus, American Graffiti, The French Connection, The China Syndrome, Shampoo, The In-Laws, Heaven Can Wait, Brazil, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, and The Artist. He's also a produced screenwriter of the film's Backdoor to Hell, A Touch of Scandal, and Passion Flower, writing for actors such as Jack Nicholson, Richard Harris, James Earl Jones, and Christopher Plummer. His terrific new memoir is called Star Flacker, Inside the Golden Age of Hollywood. Please welcome to the show an eyewitness to showbiz's greatest era and a man who once shared a limo with Warren Beatty and Georgie Jessel. <laughs> Dick <laughs> Gutman. <laughs> oh, thank you so much. You saved the best for laughs. My <laughs> wife and I were just talking about that ride in, uh, in Vegas, and it was astonishing. George Jessel was... A philosopher, and uh, and and Warren, you know, at the height of his the, the kind of esteem that he enjoyed all of his career, just sat there and and absorbed. It was quite amazing. It was back in the seventies. Yeah, it must have been yeah. early early seventies. Early seventies. Because I was yeah. still at Rogers and Cohen, and we and we were flying a whole bunch of uh, celebrities up for a Milton Berle opening. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Okay, well, that brings us to the question I ask every one of my guests who has dealt with Milton Berle. Uh oh. <laughs> yeah, Have it's you... true. And what? Yes, it's true what you're about to ask. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you you went right for it. So so you've actually seen it. Well, you couldn't go into his dressing room after the show without because he was always where. <laughs> No, I'm not kidding. He would always wear a robe, but the robe was always open, and it was a, a painful fact of life. Amazing. There's a good Burl story in the book, too, Dick, the story about him uh, being on the plane, and they're, they're, they're flying around to burn off fuel, and he yeah, got well, up that, and, did, and did two hours of material? 
He did, but he couldn't remember any of the material. So what happened was the New York News, for the Sunday News, wanted to do a double truck. That's two pages next to each other. Story byline by Milton about he, – he entertained them for about four hours. Oh, I love that. And and um, and so we, we sat down in his dress in, at his office at William Morris. And, you know, he was always famous for that he kept files of other people's jokes and everything. Right. He did. There were these <laughs> filing cabinets. And, and his – I think his guy's name was oh, – I forget. Hal Collins, I think. And it was one of his writers. So – we sit down and I'm I'm going to buy, do the byline for him. So we're going through it and he's telling me the different stories and um, and I said, well, w- w- there was something that annoyed you. We can't just you, you just didn't do four hours. He said, oh, there's this kid kept running up and down the aisles and uh, he was he was stepping on all my punchlines. And I said, and you said to him, I said, kid, sit down. I said, no, you said something. Something that was really funny. He says, what? I said, uh, you said, kid, go outside and play. And he said, what? <laughs> I said, I said, you said, kid, go outside and play. He says, we were 30,000 feet over Bayonne, New Jersey. He would have been killed. I said, but that's a, it's a funny line. And no. So we go through and we're, we finally wind it up after about two hours. And I said, I, you know, I, I still don't have a really – solid punchline that's different than what you have in your act. And uh, he, he says, we'll come up with something. And uh, he says, what was that thing? Hal, Hal, what was that thing I said to that kid uh, who was running up and down the house? He says, Milty, you said, kid, why don't you go outside and play? He says, yeah, that's good. Let's go with that. <laughs> <laughs> I, love, I love it. Rejected it from you, but find the well, second Well, that's okay. Time. That's yeah. okay. Yeah. You know what? I join a glorious group of people who Milton Berle stole a joke from. Of course. Now, we have something in common in that we were both asked to be guest programmers on Turner Classic Movies. Yeah. Great honor. And, and uh, Yeah, and so much fun. And I remember I was on and I picked four movies, the original of Mice and Men with Janie and Burgess Meredith. Right, right, right. And Freaks and Burt Lancaster and The Swimmer. Oh, yeah, The Swimmer. And wow. uh, Gene Hackman and The Conversation. Now, no. you you know Gene Hackman. And he, and he played an important part in the success of The Conversation. Yeah. Yeah. You well, Gene played an important part in my success because when I left Rogers and Cowan without bringing anybody with me, I mean, I didn't think it was appropriate for me to take somebody else's clients. And I, um, Warren Warren Beatty called and he says, um, "I want you to handle Gene." He was he just had done French Connection. They didn't really know what they had actually, and uh, and it was sort of famous that Gene was the number seven guy ahead of him was Jackie Gleason. But oh yeah, all the people they wanted for French Connection. They couldn't yeah, get Frank somebody. Sinatra, they want. I think so. Yeah, I think it was. But he was. Gene was so brilliant in that. I mean, so many films. I, I know oh, that so you many. like Night Moves. Were we were great. talking about it before we turned the mics on. I mean, and we, you know, everybody knows the French Connection, oh, and everybody yeah. knows the, the, you know, the Poseidon Adventure and those kind of things. But, but Night Moves and All Night Long and. Gilbert, you like I've never sang from my father. Yeah, and uh, so many great. I mean, sm- smaller films like like Prime Cut, you know that he's great yeah. in Eureka. Yeah. I mean, uh, so so much great Scarecrow. 
the list goes on and on. I mean, it's a, just it's such a, an imp- impressive body of work. He did uh, Conversation and Scarecrow back to back. Yeah, ama- amazing. And what, what's interesting is that when you think about your career being a publicity guy with old Hollywood and all these great stars, the first thing you think about is uh, Burt Lancaster and Tony Curtis and Sweet right. Smell of oh, Success. Oh, yeah, Sydney, Sydney Falco. Exactly. Sydney Falco cast a curse on press agents. What is it now? It's 60 years? Or- <laughs> <laughs> no, it's close to it. And the terrible irony is that I was handling Tony, and I did that campaign. <laughs> it's a hell of a movie, by the way. It's a great movie, but everybody thinks that's what press agents are. But you said you never met a Sidney Falco in all your years in the business. I never met one. Yeah. No. I mean, I, I met guys who were conniving, but, you know, let's face it, Sidney Falco would jeopardize people's lives right. in, in order to get a break. And, you know, all drama is an overstatement. But this is this really casts a curse on us. What has this boy got that Susie likes? Integrity, acute, like indigestion. What does this mean? Integrity, a pocket full of firecrackers, waiting for a match. You know, it's a new wrinkle. To tell you the truth, I never thought I'd make a killing on some guy's integrity. I'd hate to take a bite out of you. You're a cookie full of arsenic. We were talking off the air, and I thought this was interesting because it showed what a PR guy does. Uh, We mentioned the whole Aflac scandal Mm -hmm. with me, and you said something interesting about that, the way it ended. Yeah, it ended dramatically, and, and I'm sure it was very painful to you. (laughs) <laughs> and, uh, no, I'm sure it is. I mean, you yeah. know, that is uh, – it, but what the main th- thrust of everything creative I've ever done is that a problem is a solution in disguise. On on the film that I did with uh, – for Fred Roos and Jack Nicholson, uh, they did it in the Philippines. It was a $200,000 movie of which everybody would take money off. They had 80000 to make the movie. And so – uh, he said, we're doing this film in the Philippines. It has to be a war movie. We have this great Japanese actor who's going to be in it. So I wrote the script for a Japanese general who involves himself somehow. And then I get a, a – uh, in those days, you got telegrams. It was telegrams that um, can't get the Japanese guy in the country. You need new script by Friday. <laughs> and I was frozen. I didn't. I didn't know what to do. And about – Three days into that seven days right, I realized that drama is creating a problem and then finding a good solution for it. And the tougher the problem, the better the solution. So I think what happened was that Aflac thing made people think of you and it, actually it separated you from it. You know, you were – for a while, you were – that's how people saw you. But they were forced now to see you that that was just – an act that you did. That's one character that you did. And I think it was good for you. It's, oh, and, you know, wow. Ne- negative is energy. You know, <laughs> you said, you know, so how are you happy? Oh, okay, that's pretty boring. How are you? Oh, God, you can't believe what's happening. That's interesting. I want to hear that story. <laughs> <laughs> Way to put a positive spin on it. Wow. 
Okay, everyone on the show, shut up. We have to talk about something else. Yes. And now back to the show. Now, now here, I'm going to put you on the spot. Okay. I'm, I'm, I'm your client. To it. Huh? You're, you're my <laughs> client, yeah. I just want to see, I want to see yeah. how your mind works. Yeah. I'm your client. I was just doing drugs with a transsexual hooker in a motel, and she OD'd. It's all over the internet. <laughs> He's not a fixer. Yeah. He's not it, a studio fixer. It, yeah, but you have to do some kind of spin. It's all over the internet, all over TV. Now, so I call you up. What can you do for me? Okay, I'm going to find a place where you can do an emotional breakdown because you're so distraught over this. It's going to be the greatest acting job of your life. People are going to have such affection for you. Oh, my God. Is it, Let's make sure that he doesn't commit suicide. No, you find a way. Negative has energy. Negative has energy and positive is, is bland and blah. I just want to ask you about Tony Curtis since you brought him up. Tony Curtis and James Mason both asked you to put false. They enjoyed having you put false items in the press about them. Yeah, they were the only guys that understood how the game was played. They were the <laughs> only guys. No, it, it, Tony was almost had a career almost like a woman's career. You know, women have short careers in Hollywood of stardom, of real stardom. You know, Catherine Hepburn goes on and is Catherine Hepburn forever. And some, I, I handle a lot of actresses who've been in the business. Jacqueline Bissett. I mean, she just won a golden gold a year or so ago. Her career is still very bright, but some, of course, her beauty is not reduced whatsoever. But women, by and large, have trouble staying stars beyond fifteen years. That's just how it is. Guys, not so much. You know, Harrison Ford is there, and Robert De Niro is you know, is riding all the glory of all those years, and Tony was so beautiful. That was almost like a woman's – of course, he was a great comedic actress, comedic actor, and um, – but an actress too because of uh, of uh, Some Like It Hot. He was the one of the three actresses in the film, he, Jack Lemmon, <laughs> and Marilyn Monroe. But he understood that it, you can only play the stardom so far, then you have to make fun of it. And so he would – I remember I wasn't at this interview. It was a guy named John Foreman who went on to produce um, Pritzi's Honor and he became pretty big. He was a great guy. And so he was out at an interview that Tony was doing at NBC. And Milton comes over and joins the lunch. And so the the writer saying, well, Tony, I know that you were born in the Bronx and you grew up. In the, and uh, Tony says, are you kidding? I was born in – Rhode Island, my I lived in this fabulous mansion, and I just made up this story so that people would think that. And Milton's uh, playing along with it, and John Foreman's sitting there saying, "Am I going crazy? You're you're Bernie Schwartz, and he weren't." But he played it, and he played it great. And and James would have me write terrible things. It was they didn't have the tabloids yet. But they had there was a stream of really awful stories that were coming out of some guy in Long Island. And James would have him have me send terrible stories that he was there but part of a group of perverts that did this and that. And he would chortle over it. <laughs> Bizarre. You came to do an impression of James Mason after a while, didn't you? It's in the book. You would call him up book. and yeah, I, do, do James I, Mason I, I, to him? 
I can do it to him. I can't do it to you guys. No, but what I did, I saw a, a Pat Collins was the hip hypnotist. One time she hit, we were at some place in Hollywood. I remember she, Pat Collins. You remember oh, her? Oh, yes. Remember her? Yeah. Celebrity hypnotist? Yeah. So, yeah. so she, she brought the guy up on the stage and uh, says, you're, you're James Mason. She says, uh, James, say your, your, your speech for us from, uh, from Julius Caesar. And he said, I don't want to. He became James Mason. He he was James Mason, <laughs> and he said exactly what James was. And uh, wait, can I use a, an off-color word? And of course, absolutely. Okay. No, we insist. Okay, so, <laughs> so so James would delighted in playing all kinds of terrible, terrible tricks on you. Just awful. One time he sent he sent me all these terrible postcards wherever he was. But this one is very beautiful of a be- woman's beautiful derriere on a moonlit beach, and uh, and it says. Dear Dick, thinking of you, the wind caresses my body as your fingers have. And my wife is convinced that this is a letter from some woman. I said, <laughs> it's obviously from James Mason. So I wanted, always wanted to get back at him. So he's, I find out he's at the Bel Air Hotel. I call the Bel Air Hotel and say, uh, uh, I have room 102. And they, uh, they actually was 102. And uh, she says, whom, who may I, whom may I say is calling? I says, it's James Mason. And uh, so he picks up the phone. Yes, Mr. Mason, how can I help you? And I'm, when I'm talking to him, I can really give it right back to him. I'm doing it. And then there's this pause. And he says, Gutman, you prick. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you know, Dick, uh, you're in luck. Gilbert has, happens to do a great James Mason. You want to do a little oh, for Dick, his old okay. friend? Check it out. Yes, from from this moment on, you'll remember nothing of Joe Pendleton. It's your destiny. Oh, my God, <laughs> oh my God that's so close. Because, you know, I, I didn't think of it, but he did have those kind of Octave changes in his voice. It, it was it was incredible what you did there. Yeah, and we, and we just saw it. Uh, I had uh, we were talking about um, Turner Classic Movies and the honor of of being a, a guest a programmer. So I recently arranged for them to acknowledge uh, Warren Warren Beatty has. Uh, Rules don't apply. It's a terrific movie. Mm-hmm. Actually, it's a terrific. He finally movie. got his Howard Hughes movie after all these years. He, he did. He did, and he did it well. It, the, his performance is just really beautiful. And so um, I was talking to Turner Collector Movies, and they decided they would have an evening, which they did a couple of days ago, three days ago, where they would show there are only three movies in which the creator one was given four nominations for the same film. One was. Uh, Citizen Kane, Arson Wells, best actor, best director, best writer, best uh, best film, and Warren for Reds, mm-hmm. and Warren for Heaven Can Wait, and so they had um, they had those three films on together to show you know what Oscars can do, and Warren was in, intrigued with it. And he did interviews with uh, Ben Banquets for it, so we were just so I asked I was. Working, I asked my wife to uh, to turn it on. It started like at five in the afternoon. I said, "Just watch it for me. I just want to make sure that it comes out well." And I get home, and she's watching the film. She watched it all the way through. 
she'd seen it, you know, ten times. Oh, it's before. great! Yeah. Heaven Can yeah. Wait is wonderful. And you worked right. on you worked on on several of Beatty's films. You worked on Shampoo and Bonnie and Clyde, another film that was kind of ignored yeah. by Jack Warner. Well, Bonnie and Clyde. Well, the only one that people don't know about was called Mickey One that he oh, did yeah, with Arthur, Arthur Penn. Oh, that where he's yeah. a comedian. Yeah, yeah, and, and it, really good in it. Yeah, it's really good. Sure. For some reason it just didn't work. It was so. It was arch. It was, you know, it was an art farm as opposed to a a straight dramatic movie. But it had some of the greatest lines and it was a wonderful movie. I love that. And you worked on Dick Tracy, which I bring up because Gilbert auditioned yeah. for the role of uh, Mumbles. Yes. <laughs> oh, really? I, I auditioned for the role of Mumbles and Warren Beatty himself is saying, oh, you'd be great for this. You're just, you're just perfect for this. Anything you want to do with this... You're, uh, we, we just want you. And then all of a sudden I find out from my agent, I go, uh, so when am I doing this movie? And he goes, oh, they're not doing going with you. And I said, who are they going with? And he goes, Dustin Hoffman. <laughs> yeah. And and I thought, I, I wonder when my name and Dustin Hoffman were running neck and neck. Well, let me tell you what, let me tell you what I know about Warren. I've never heard him. He's never lied to me. And we've, we've been together for well over 50 years. He's never lied to me. And, um, and, and his enthusiasms are real. So whatever he was feeding you on that, that was real. But, you know, if, if who knows how that came about, but the studio is certainly going to say, uh, this guy just won the Academy Award last year. <laughs> of course. <laughs> well, but I, I, I will have to tell you, the, it, I went to the, the night that – Mumbles and Big Boy, who was um, oh, Al Pacino. Yeah, Al Pacino. They had this one one scene together. There were about thirty takes. Every take was funnier than the last. It was it was astonishing. I'll bet. They, they weren't the same. They they kept changing. Wasn't Hoffman doing a Robert Evans impression, in part as Mumbles? Oh my God! That I never thought of before. I'd heard it's that. Possible. And I, what 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 I've always said about that incident was like the only way my name and Dustin Hoffman's name were ever in the same sentence is I've seen Gilbert Gottfried's acting and he's no Dustin Hoffman. Well, but but they didn't see you doing uh, mumbles. You know, yeah. Warren, I'm sure Warren saw something really good and what was happening there. But then I, I can understand Disney saying Al Pacino and oh, Dustin Hoffman. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Get me mumbles. I don't know. 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 Now, tell us about working with Kirk Douglas. Well, Kirk was, was very interesting. I, I, I handled a lot of stuff for Kirk when I was at Rogers & Cohen, and then we also handled them in my own companies. And um, we handled Michael. I think he started – he was in Streets of San Francisco right about when I started my com- company. It would have been 72, 73 so we handled him then, and then I did, I did supervise the publicity on um, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest and uh, China Syndrome. Mm-hmm. I thought they were great movies. Yeah, but I think they were, they were pretty good campaigns. I was proud of those. 
And so we were close to, to Michael, and I was at a party that I, I just touch Oscar films now. You know, I'm, I'm 83. I'm not looking, you know, what my client list is going to be 10 years from now. <laughs> so so I, don't, I don't do Oscar campaigns anymore, but I touch them. And uh, people bring me on for a couple of ideas. And um, so I was – I do a lot of that for Harvey Weinstein. And so he had a party. Every great, beautiful actress in the world was at that party. It was for Penelope Cruz for um, uh, Marie Barcelona. And um, so among them was Catherine Zeta-Jones and she's there. I mean it was astonishing. You walk there and you'd see Drew Barrymore and uh, Cameron Diaz. I mean just everywhere you looked, there were 35 of the most beautiful women. Just never been to a party like that. So I – was leaving it, and Michael was leaving at the same time. We we're getting our cars. I said, "You know, I'm I'm doing uh, uh, I'm doing a, a, a memoir." He says, "Well, gosh, you work for everybody. Uh, it should be terrific." I said, "Yeah, but you know, the strange thing is, I was never close to your dad. Kirk is about as cuddly as a cactus, you know. He's, <laughs> but but, he, but it, you respect him as much as you do." And and I said, "I just as I went through my life." I kept discovering all these things that I learned from Kirk, and I think he was the most persuasive and instrumental person in my life because his courage was – that chin was Kirk. You know, that, that chin it jutted out, and what he did with Spartacus, the town was still caught up in the blacklist, and he hired Dalton Trumbo, as did Otto Preminger for yeah, Exodus. Sure, but, sure. but those two guys were the only guys in town – courageous enough to to do that and when Spartacus came out cast notwithstanding him it was the greatest cast it didn't do very well at the beginning and Kirk knew that not only for his dedication to that film but his dedication to breaking the blacklist it had to succeed and he said let's bring it out a second time nobody had ever done that and it was a second time around and so um, it's actually how I sort of gotten closely involved with Kurt. I was on the set of Spartacus a lot because of Tony Curtis and um, Peter Ustinov, who I represented. And um, But I didn't get close to Kirk. And uh, Kirk was, very, was with Rogers and Cowan, but he was very much Warren Cowan's uh, client. And so Kirk says, OK, we're going to bring the film out again. We have to do it with a great uh, trailer, what we used to then call preview. We'll put the theaters uh, before the feature film, and it's going to be me explaining why I'm coming back with this thing. And so it was set up, and it was going to shoot 2 o'clock, 10 in the morning. Kirk calls, and he says, Universal just gave me uh, their, their take on this. It's nothing. I need a new one. I need it now. So I sit down and write it. And I go out there. I was, let's see, it was thirty. So I was like twenty-five then, and uh, and he's, you know, he was a mountain. <laughs> Kirk Douglas, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and so I come, and he's at the at a makeup mirror. There's two guys that are talking to him, but they're making him up. And so I come in. I'm looking at his his image in the mirror, and he says. That the immortal prose kid? And I said, we'll see. And he looks at it and he reads it. And then 
He looks up at me. Then he reads it again. <clears throat> this is not going well. And uh, th they have a, cameras ready to shoot him. And so he looks at it again. Then he turns around and he, that growl in the back of his throat. Dick, how long have you been in this business? And I knew it was a lost cause. And I said, long enough to know better than whatever you have on your mind. <laughs> and uh, everybody was a little startled, including me. And he says, okay, go over to stage 10. Tell him I'll be there in 15. That's he great. Bought, he bought my belief. Wow. You know what's great? He can still call you kid now. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> That's true. I think that he's. I think it's great that he's gone on this long. He was amazing. We just yeah. talked about him. He just turned a hundred. What? A couple of weeks ago. Yeah. We just did a show about it. Yeah, and he had a major stroke and is still going. Yeah. Well, we handled him right after the stroke. His uh, son Peter called. Uh, I think this was after. No, it was before Warren Cowan had had died, but they had come apart a bit. And uh, and I remember taking him to some event for Israel, and he got up and he had this slurred speech, but he made such a powerful speech. And and the slurring, what I say about a problem is a solution. When he's giving the speech, you know, Kirk Douglas can give any speech. He's Kirk Douglas. But this is Kirk Douglas climbing over this impediment and giving it. And I remember what he said is um, he says in – in Hebrew, there's no word for charity. There's no word for charity. The words is the word tzedakah, but it means a gift that if somebody comes and the people try to give them the tzedakah of the tools of his trade. If he's a shoemaker, they'll try to give him a hammer and whatever. And, it, and tzedakah means the right thing. <laughs> that was such a powerful philosophy. And he played an early. Uh, he played a role early in your career because when you first went to to uh, Rogers and Cowan as a nineteen year old, and you were working in the mailroom, right. and you didn't really know what they did right. until you until you were told to make a delivery to somebody's house. Right. I, I was just I was just looking for a job, and um, I go to this place, and I have no idea what to. I mean, I'd been a journalist all my right. life. Right. I was fifteen. I was writing uh, high school sports for Hearst newspaper. And um, and I was a film student. And so it's sort of the amalgam of that, those two things, those two streams of my life came together. This I'd never heard of publicity. I just never had heard of it. And uh, I thought this is some company. I don't care. I'm making deliveries and doing the – so I, I knock on this door and Kirk Douglas opens the door. And I say, what, what are these guys doing? And <laughs> what so are they I up started, to? <laughs> Yeah, so I started reading the memos that I was delivering from one office to the other, and I thought, boy, this is something I know how to do. There's so many wonderful stories, uh, Dick, in the book, and I'm I'm just I'm looking at my cards and I'm thinking which one you should we should have you tell uh, the Ustinov Olivier story. Oh, that was wonderful. Is fun. And, oh yeah, that tell was Gilbert great. about that. Okay, P Peter Ustinov, one of the great wits. But I have to tell you, we would have games of wit because one of the things you do a lot with clients is you drive them to interviews. Well, that's a half hour. You have to have something to say. I remember one time I was driving uh, Alan Arkin to an interview, and I said, um, 
have, have you ever had a press agent before? He said, yeah, yeah, I did. I said, who was it? He said, so-and-so. I said, he's pretty good. Why'd you leave him? He says, well, he just he never shut up. He was always talking. It was all yada, yada, yada. You, you know what I mean? I said, I have nothing to say. <laughs> <laughs> and, and the fun with Alan was you couldn't make him laugh. But I said, you have, I have nothing to say on the subject. And we drove about a block and they went, <laughs> that was my success. <laughs> Always poker-faced, Alan Arkin. Yeah. And and you worked with Cary Grant. Yeah. I was lucky. You know, you, you stumble into things. Um, when I first started my own business, I didn't know if I could make my own salary. And um, <clears throat> But a friend of mine, Leslie Stevens, was a famous writer for Playhouse 90 and he believed in me, and he says, I'm doing a new series for for Warner Brothers, and I want you on. And he got me a salary that paid my salary, so it made it possible for me to start my business. And in the uh, show was Hugh O'Brien, who's one of the stars. Oh, we just lost him. We just lost him. It was yeah. a big loss. People, people don't know. Oh, he did so much work for the Hugh O'Brien Youth Organization, Has has never had less than three kids in the White House. In some capacity, he opened doors for kids, thousands and thousands. I didn't know he was such a philanthropist until I read your book. Well, that's one of the reasons I wanted to write the book, to let people know things they didn't know. Because mm-hmm. it's important to know about that. And so he was – he and Cary Grant were on the board of uh, Fabergé, the famous um, cosmetics company, perfume and cosmetics. And um, Cary was on it. And so he arranged for us to handle Fabergé. Carey was on the board. He was a spokesperson. And so George Barry, who's the head of Fabergé, paid us to do Carey's publicity. I mean, so suddenly I'm starting a new company and one of our clients is Carey Grant. It was a pretty good start for the company. But it was fun handling him because he was – they were all decisively individualistic. And – one thing Carrie was was incredibly truthful. And so he calls one morning and he says, um, Dick, two syllables for my name, <laughs> Dick, uh, this is Carrie. I don't know who this is calling. And he says, do you know this fellow from, from United something, uh, Vernon somebody? I said, yeah, Vernon Scott, United Press International. He says, I wonder if he would do a story for you. What's the pro-? He says, I have a problem. What's the problem, Carrie? Well, this is women's magazine. They quoted me as saying I never loved any of my wives. I said, well, that's, that's really rude. Did you ever say that or something like it? He says, yes, like it. Yes, I did. I said, what was it? He says, I once said I never left any of my wives. They all <laughs> left me. And I said, I think I could get Verdun to do a story on this. But – you know, he was a guy who was so intent on telling the truth, the greatest ro- romantic figure of that of the century he was. And he was – he wanted to tell the truth. There's a story in the book too and um, uh, I, which is another reason I urge people to get the book. There's a, a great story, a touching story about Cary Grant and Lawrence Harvey. Oh, yes, yes, yes. That one is touches I, – I, it was hard to write through the tears on when I was writing yeah, that story. I would urge people to, yeah. to pick up the book and, and read that story. But but quickly, tell us the uh, tell us the Ustinov story with uh, with Olivia. Okay, okay. So I'm on the set with Peter, and I'm, I re- make a point of going out there. I mean, I worked with 
Olivier later on The Entertainer, but I, you know, he's a, he's a mythic figure. Sure. I wanted, I wanted to see this scene. And so it was a simple scene. Of, uh, Peter was the man who ran the school for gladiators and Olivier was this powerful um, Roman uh, senator. And um, – and the, I can't remember the subject of the scene. I, I think he wanted to buy one of – he wanted to buy Kirk actually, right. one of the gladiators. And uh, they have this discussion and Olivier would take every scene and just simply saying, who is this man? He would say, who is this man? And Peter would say – He's Spartacus, and they were playing <laughs> They were hamming it up so incredible. Two of the greatest eagles in the world, but what a scene that was! Of what? course, it wasn't in the film. <laughs> and 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 uh, Stanley Kubrick, who was the director, right? Let them play that scene. He knew that they were goofing it up, and he was interested in it. It didn't get in the film. It was. He never said cut. He never said, oh, "Come on, guys." He said. At the end of it, he says, thank you, guys. What a great thing for you to witness. I understand. Informed. Spartacus once trained under your auspices. Yes. In fact, uh, if it isn't too subversive to say so, I, I made him what he is today. You to be congratulated indeed. And I too, as it happens, since you're so admirably qualified. Give me what up to now I've not been able to obtain. Physical description of Spartacus. Oh, yes. Um, but you saw him. What? In the ring. When? When you visited my school with those two charming ladies. <laughs> I trust they're both in good health. I want to hear the Cary Grant uh, Lawrence, Lawrence Harvey. Harvey story. Yeah, he can tell it. Yeah. Okay. Well, Lawrence Harvey, uh, people may not know Lawrence Harvey, but if you see uh, Manchurian oh, Candidate sure. Larry, Harvey. yeah, he was, he was one of the great actors and he was one of the great uh, Royal Shakespeare Theater actors in England. And we met when he first came over here to do um, uh, Richard I. He was my first client and, and became a lifelong friend. I mean, his lifelong not short. It was too short. And um, Larry, as part of, as part of our work for Fabergé, we also represented Sun Valley. You know, just a pretty distinguished place to represent. And I came up with the idea because uh, Fabergé had three films that were bringing out. One of them did very well in the Oscars was uh, Touch of Class. And so, oh, I like that film. I went, it was a great movie. Yeah, Glenda and, Jackson. Uh, Glenda Jackson. We handled Glenda. Can you imagine the distinguished oh, feeling you had doing that? The best. In fact, Glenda, we were in London. I was trying to talk. I asked her for a meeting because I wanted to do a camp Oscar campaign on Hedda. And she said, I'll meet you at your hotel. We're at this little tiny hotel, but they had a really nice library. So she comes over, my wife and I meet with her. And she says, nobody has seen Hedda. I said, they will. And she said, How? Well, I was going to put it on Z Channel. And, of course, she got nominated because we had it on Z Channel. Nice. And then at the hotel, because we had Glenda Jackson there, the next morning we got double the marmalade. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Oh, it's a big honor. 
But, so you, um, so you're in Sun Valley with Cary Grant okay, and, so, and Lawrence. So we're Harvey. up there, and I, yes, I'm throwing this uh, Fabergé Film Festival. Three films that they have, and Larry is there, and he's so visibly dying. He's he was six foot two, three. And he maybe if he weighed 140 pounds, that was a lot. And he's in this sort of orange jumpsuit, and it just folds around him. So. One of the ways that we got the press there, and I'm telling you, we had hundreds of media who flew themselves up there for this event. And um, and Jim Garner and uh, Gene Hackman, we had all the great stars because Cary Grant, the, the invitation came from Cary Grant. And at the end of it, he was going to do a 45-minute Q&A. And we had – was like um, – like uh, an auditorium in a college where you go to a class, there was probably uh-huh. 300 people there. And so Carrie is doing it, and Larry comes in at the back and stands there, and a question is asked of Carrie, and Carrie says, you know, I, I don't really have an answer for that, but, you know, Larry is here. He just walked in. Uh, let's, hey, Larry, what do you think about that? So Larry, in the, the most beautiful voice in the history of film, untouched by his illness, uh, response. And um, so the next question comes in, it's to Larry. And Larry's standing there. And Carrie got up from his seat down at the, the stage, walks up as Larry's doing it, stands with him, takes him by the arm, takes him, walks him down and sits him in the chair, stands behind him massaging his neck while the questions came in for Larry. And then I... It wasn't a dry eye in that house, I will tell you. He he completely gave up his moment for uh, wow. for, for Lawrence Harvey because he was ill. Wow! And he, and he knew it was the last stage for Larry. Yeah, he was in the last stage of his of his illness. Tell us about your your long friendship with uh, with an actor we've talked about on this show a lot, and that's Paul Newman. Okay, I'm not I'm not sure it was a friendship because I worked with him for about ten years. But and he spent the bulk of his life as a client of Warren Cowan, who was my teacher, Your mentor, and right? Sure, mentor and a competitor. And then at the end, uh, when Rogers and Cowan sold out to some other company, he was obliged to not compete for three years. But he still had Paul and Aaron Spelling and all these really good people, Kirk, and he asked me to oversee his company while I was running mine. So I was doing both companies out of mine. And then when he was finished, he came back and he was in our office. And um, my wife came in and she didn't like that there were so many people. Uh, she went there, there were like eight people standing by the copying machine waiting to do it. So she went into Warren and she said, Warren, there are too many rats in the cage. He said, what do you mean? She said, well, if there's two rats, they can get along okay. Yeah. But then the, the too many, they're snarling at each other. He says, um, you mean you want me to leave? And she said, yes. And he says, when do you, when would you like me to do so? She said, well, that depends on your interpretation of the word as soon as possible. <laughs> and he said, well, you know, I, I always thought that Richard and I would be partners. And she said, Warren, she loved him because we've been friends for years. She said, Warren, he's going to have one partner the rest of his life and you're looking at her. Oh, that's great. Yeah. So it was, but uh, so Paul. Paul was really, in every sense of the word, Warren's client. In fact, I heard one of the most 
important calls I got after the book came out was Warren had died at 90 and he was still, you know, one great thing about PR is, I mean, there's some evidence. You can do it up until you step into the grave. And um, Warren, I got a call from his daughter, Bonnie, and she thanked me. She said, you got Warren. And I said, I thought it was so important to emphasize that friendship between him and Paul. She says, well, you don't understand. On the day that he died, this is, it's not in the book, something that she told me. On the day he died, he was in the bed, and he had lied to people and told them that Paul Numa was okay. He was, he was on his deathbed too, although it was, took place like two months later. And they thought that Warren had, had slipped away. Phone call comes in. It's Joanne Woodward. She said, Paul would like to talk to Warren. And so they, she said, they said, Daddy, Paul's on the phone for you. And he roused up. And Paul said, uh, just call to wish you well and a good journey. Wow. That was on the last day. So the, so the, the relationship with clients can become quite intense. Well, Warren Cowan, your your boss and your mentor, mm-hmm. is a, is a, a legend too. Married twice to the the actress Barbara Rush, oh, yeah. By the way, but also just uh, I, I urge our listeners to read up on him, and and the history of Rogers and Cowan. Well, I because I wrote it's the, a, book. the story of publicity in Hollywood in the twentieth century. Yeah, and it was an important story too because press agents, you know, Hollywood shaped how we see ourselves. Cary Grant shaped what we aspire to be in terms of charm. Gary Cooper aspired to what we wanted to be in terms of straightforward, you know. Uh, These people represented what we aspire to, and publicity really facilitated that. And I think it was really important. But what happened was when Warren died, uh, I asked uh, Paul Block, another great press agent who was associated with Warren, I said, you know, is, is anybody trying to have a book done? She, he said, yes. He had a notes for a book, and he said, I've been taking it to p- publishers, but uh, they won't publish a book by somebody who's not going to be able to go to the book signings. Right. So huh. it's very very hard to sell a biography by a guy who's dead. So I started writing really fast. But I intended to write Warren's biography, which I think I could have. But as I was doing it – uh, all these other stories started coming in, and you know, I'm I can't write notes because I'm dyslexic and I can't read what I write. So I have a really good memory that hooks these things. And I had, I mean, this is a very big book. I never cracked another book for research while I was writing it because all I did was wander into this kind of gold mine that was my mind and picked some piece of gold off here and piece of gold off there. It's an amazing – it's like a diary. It's it's almost like it you were making daily entries for, for 50 years. Well, well, I did it for five years. That's for yeah, sure. Well, it's, I mean it's a great read. Tell, tell Gilbert that, that Paul Newman had a, had a fondness for telling jokes, but he didn't tell them well. <laughs> <laughs> just, just terrible, just terrible. Yeah, uh, I mean, and, and he would tell them, and we would laugh, and then you'd go away, 
I mean, how far off, how how rowdy can I be on you this? You can be rowdy. Oh, sure. okay. God, okay. we encourage well, look, it. Look, the show started off with me asking yeah. you about Milton Berle's dick. Yeah, that's <laughs> okay. true. That's true. So that's true. that was clean. You can go anywhere yeah. you want. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, Paul, I remember once it was a party at Warren's house, and Paul's, you know, he, he had an audience where he, well, he was Paul Newman. It's, it's just, I don't know who today represents what he was. He was. Tom Cruise times George Clooney times mm-hmm. uh, whoever, and uh, and the the joke was that this guy has is a bee farmer, and he has these bees that he takes out and he pollinates people's things, and he has three he has three million bees, and so this newspaper guy is sent out to talk to this guy. To, there's a story here, and so. <laughs> he goes there and he's it's sort of a flat farm and there's just a house and there's a, a, a like a barn and um he and and uh and the guy says uh well, where are the 3 million bees he says well they're over there in that shack he says the 3 million bees in a shack yeah so they go over and there and the shack's empty there's a shelf and there are three like 4 gallon bottles sitting on it and he says where are the 3 million bees she said in the bottles and he says, well, doesn't that, like, crush them? And he says, fuck them. <laughs> that wasn't was a joke. That's the it joke. Was, it wasn't a joke. <laughs> so, I mean, it, it wasn't – there was no humor there. It was, but Paul was – and he just laughed and laughed. And and then I found out that the, the other people – and the other thing he did, he would test you. Because he knew he was Paul Newman. He knew that everybody would suck up to him. Nobody would tell him the truth. <laughs> and and he made you. And uh, and I talked to – oh, my gosh. I can't think of her name. It was a really terrific actress who had been in a film with him. She was It was her first role. She's with Paul Newman. Paul gives her a tape of a show that he had done on Playhouse 90 or Studio One, one of the great one-hour live shows that they used to have on television. And she looks at it, and it's terrible, and he's unprofessional. And the next day he says, what did you think? She said, I don't know. I couldn't get past the bad acting of the guy in the the lead. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it it cemented her relationship with him. He was putting her on? Hmm? He was putting her on? No, he was testing her. Oh, I see. He was testing if he would lie to her, if he, she would lie to him. Now, you you uh, worked, I mean, I, I think you may have worked where you worked on a movie that had one of my favorite old character actors, John MacGyver. Yeah, on uh, Love in the Afternoon. Oh, yeah, Love in the Afternoon. Well, yeah, you were a and kid. I, you were 22. I was, yeah, I was 22 when he started that. And uh, I do remember, because I'd never seen him before, and there's the scene where he comes in to find his wife in the middle of a lovemaking with Gary, with Gary Cooper. And then he goes to the phone. He says um, – and he finds out that Audrey's there. She's inserted herself to save this woman's life and Audrey Hepburn. And uh, he goes to the phone. He says, uh, do you have another room 1122? No. Um is there possibly a room 2211? No. Is this the Ritz Hotel? <laughs> it, was, it was nothing. <laughs> but he, and, and, he, and 
uh, Billy Wilder had him do it about four times, and he did it differently each time. And I was just amazed at how great an actor he was. Kindly disconnect yourself from my wife. I beg your pardon? Over there, where the light is better. Do we know each other? Only by proxy. I am the foolish husband. Who's foolish husband? Her foolish husband. My foolish husband? Josephine? Well, is this lady your wife? Is your name Frank Flanagan? Yes. Is this sweet 14? Yes. Then she must be my wife. Are you? I don't think so. It's all very confusing. May I use your phone? Go right ahead. Help yourself. Hello? Give me the concierge. And Billy loved those guys. Those he character actors? Oh, he loved them. Yeah. So did I. I mean, they, they were the reason Hollywood, the golden age of Hollywood was golden. Yeah, well, you talk about it. Uh, you, you say it's over, the golden age of Hollywood. So tell us why you say that. I mean, obviously, a lot of people would agree with you. Let me tell you, I, I took the first three chapters because I wasn't sure if I was writing anything. And I showed them to Warren Beatty. Warren's a big part of the book. Yeah, so, I mean, there, there's nobody in the business who's smarter than he is, and um, really kinder. He's really a kind guy, and he read it and he said, "You know, you're making a false assumption here." He says, "I know you're saying that we were greater." He says, "We weren't better actors. We weren't more handsome. The system changed." I said, "That's why I'm writing the book." Well, you say that Hollywood no longer has the ability to generate legends. I don't think they do. Well, first place, we've destroyed primacy in terms of celebrity. I mean, where do the celebrities come? They're coming from the reality television. I mean, think of where's Paris Hilton now? But at the time, she was the number one star. And what what gets me is um, with the internet, you know, you years ago you couldn't communicate with Clark Gable or Charlie no. Chaplin. It was mystery. Yeah, yeah and no, now no intrigue. Yeah, now everybody has access to every celebrity. Right. Well, I have I've two minds of that. I mean, I'm very much a a creature of my century. I mean, I I'm not very good with the computer. My staff has to help me. I really don't know a lot about social media. Our company does it as well as anybody else because I have these young people that are terrific. But I resent greatly what how everything has devolved. Has it's gotten worse instead of better, and it's it's because it's because people have access and they have it for a different reason. I'm, I handled Elizabeth until she died, Taylor. And uh, she was always beset by her whole life. She was beset by gossip. And uh, with the coming of the tabloids and then with the, the Internet, uh, it, it was pretty bad. And they, they were always – for a number of years, uh, the, town, the, the media couldn't wait for her to die. And uh, to the point that at one point – and it was bad for her. First place, she was running the 
uh, HIV, the Elizabeth Taylor AIDS Foundation. It was really important for her vivacity and the fact that she was still involved to be aware, people should be aware of that. But also she had a great perfume and uh, that anticipation of her death constant uh, was bad. And so I had suggested that we do Larry King and I call Larry and he said, oh, I'll do anything. We'll come to the house. We can cut around it. If this is, if she has any bad thing, we cut it out. I said, no, Larry, I want her to be at the studio live and people can see how vital she is. You know, she was one of the sassiest people there ever was. And um, so we do that and she was great on the show. And uh, the next day – I get a call from a news reporter on CNN. Do you have a number where you can be reached this, this weekend? I said, you mean in case Elizabeth Taylor dies? And she said, yes. I said, do you not watch your own network? She was on last night. Uh, Robin Williams couldn't have been more vital than she was. Doesn't that mean something? No, they, were, they didn't want to miss the big event. You also talk about how uh, you, you, I've seen you in interviews and you're talking about the year 1939. You're talking about the demise of the studio system and how in 1939, how many landmark films came out that we never see anything yeah. like that again either. You want, well, if you look at the, the years around it, they were pretty good. 38 and 40 and 41, they were great yeah, years. Yeah, all good. But that, but that year, there were 10 films that were nominated. Every one of them went on to become uh, a classic, a Gone with the Wind. Wizard of Oz, Gone with the Wind. Yeah, Gunga Din, Mr. I think Smith. is Stagecoach. Well, I believe Gunga, so. Yeah. Gunga Din was that year, but it didn't get nominated. Oh, Gunga Din was not nominated. That's there were, right. There were 20 films after them. Uh, Jane, uh, not Jane Eyre. Um, uh, uh, Beau Jest was. Uh, Beau Jest. Uh, um, Destry Rides Again. Uh, these are. Uh, uh, was of mice and men that year? Thirty nine. Uh, yes, of mice and men was thirty nine. Mice it, and men was one of the nominees. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and and it kind of got buried because I mean, look at the competition; it was yeah. insane. Stagecoach. Well, you know, there wasn't a thing of getting buried then because it was a tsunami coming in of great movies, and we expected it. And Gone with the Wind didn't get. Drenched by uh, Wizard of Oz, nor did Wizard of Oz have gone with the wind. We we thought of greatness and we expected greatness. But there were – after those 10 films, I mean it was uh, Weathering Heights and uh, Mr. Smith Goes to I know, Washington. Go, list Goodbye, on. Mr. Chips. I mean incredible films. And then there were 20 films of brilliance, of really incredible brilliance that didn't get nominated that year. Yeah. And that's what you expected. And and one of the, when I came into the industry, it was the end of the studio system, the contract system. And everybody was saying, oh, Hollywood's going to fly now because the stars can – we won't have Jack Warner and uh, Louis B. Mayer and Adolf Zucker and these guys sitting on Harry Cohn telling them what to do. Those guys were monsters. I mean I, I was around some of them and, and they – Goldwyn wasn't – Goldwyn was very charming actually. But they knew their their power and they exerted their power. And uh, but the one thing was they wanted to make good movies, and they got directors that made good movies, and they got stars to put them in. They Hollywood was great because those guys set the table. Mm-hmm. And then suddenly, when the, they were gone, 
people were coming up with their own films. They weren't that good. Yeah, because I remember like Betty Davis said in an interview that the studio heads, I mean, they they were bastards and they all came from non-show business and they were like basically clothing salesmen. Yeah, the schmata salesmen. Yeah. yeah. And, and shoes, mostly they, shoes. N- yeah, but they knew how to make a great movie. Yes, they did. Yeah. They did. And they, and they inspired some of them. Uh, I mean – uh, Sam Goldwyn, right after the war, read an article about the difficulty of guys coming back and adjusting, and he decided he said he set someone down to write "Best Years of Our Lives," one of the greatest films Another of all great time. One. Dick, you've, you, time. you've lived the life, my friend. Well, I still have a little to go, I think. Well, <laughs> <laughs> there's, there's, there's stories in the book that we didn't even get to. There's a story about a party that Gilbert would love this. Bobby, You walked into a party. Bobby Darren was on the piano. Dean and Sammy were singing, and Sal Minio and Marlon Brando were playing the bongos. I lo- wow. I love that one. Wow. Uh, another time you were at a party uh, with Tony Randall, Vince Edwards, and you were screening a movie with Groucho. Yeah. You know, we didn't, the, even, we didn't it, even get to that. You met Harpo. You met Orson Welles. Yeah, no, it was a life. I have no complaints about my life. It was wonderful. And I, I don't have any envy of the fact that I helped other people to fame. I never wanted it. I mean, I'm doing this because I really was looking forward to the conversation. Yeah, as we were. I, I, I do love, I love talking about it. I love talking about them. What were Groucho and Harpo like? Well, Harpo, I can't tell you because I only. I only met him once. He, I was handling a charity, and one of his paintings was uh, being auctioned. It was quite beautiful and uh, a very floral scene. And um, so how I had somehow connected with him. And then I get a call, and he said, this is Harpo Marx. I'd never spoken to him. And uh, he said, I'm going to Israel, and I'd like to do something. I said, well, I'd like to do that for you, Mr. Marx, but how do I know that you're – Harpo Marx, I've never heard you speak. <laughs> <laughs> Could have been James Mason pranking you. <laughs> but then I then I asked him about a question. There, uh, the, the greatest uh, memoirist of all time was Oscar Levant, and uh, he was full of uh, Harpo Marx stories. And so I asked him about one of the stories, and he answered correctly. So I, I got I took care of him. There's so many stories in the book, and we urge our listeners to pick up Star Flacker. Also, what is it? Six hundred and seventy pages, Dick. Six hundred seventy. Incredible. They fly past you. They fly pa- inside the golden age of Hollywood. There's stories about Jackie Bissett and oh, it's people we didn't get to. Like I said, Groucho oh, and oh, and Frank and I were talking Mickey about Rooney. this. That Christopher Plummer hated Sound of Music. He called it the Sound of Mucus, and I was afraid to say that. <laughs> he was no, I, no, I was afraid to to put it in the book, and then suddenly um, the LA Times did a story, and they mentioned that. I thought, oh God, now I can do it. I can't get sued. No, he was. Um, we we handled him while he, while he was doing that, and he was he fought me on all the publicity. Although I got one gift from him, I'm, so we burned down in '93. I'm so this was the thing I really loathed losing. He was. He did a Hamlet, and uh, it didn't get good reviews. And but Gisela, my wife, and I really loved it, and so we sent him a, a telegram that about that. And he sent one back, and it says, "Dear Dick and Gisela, thank you for your note. It pleased me greatly. Uh, 
see you on my return, Chris. Except they added a letter. So it said, Dear Dick and Gisela, thank you for your letter. It cheered me greatly. See you on my return, Christ. <laughs> you also, I mean, this, 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 we're, there's so many people in the book that we didn't get to. Tony Randall and Mickey Rooney and William Holden, yeah. and you knew you were friends with David Jansen. We'll, we'll talk to you again, Dick, and we'll cover that stuff. That would be great. I really enjoy this, and I'm really interested in the audience that you that you bring to this. Well, it's, you know, really this important. this show is about celebrating old Hollywood. This is our hundred 138th episode. I have a lot of good clients that I'm going to throw your way. Oh, Jackie we'd be thrilled. Bissett. Oh, great. We'd be thrilled. Ja- Jackie, Jackie's uh, really had a new zenith in her career. She's doing all kinds of good movies. We're fans. Yeah. yeah. Well, Jackie you know? Parti- Particularly The Deep. <laughs> <laughs> I know where you're I'll going be, with you know, that. You know, her allure is still exactly the same. I, actually, I invited her to his premiere, and I think it was Benjamin Button's. So she gets there, and the first rank of the uh, the photographers is shooting Jennifer Lopez, and so um, Jennifer Lopez they finish, and then she goes down, and I start to bring Jackie forward, but they're still shooting Jennifer Lopez, and I said to Jackie, you know what, their their sale shot is going to be her from the side. They need to have something that shows the derriere. <laughs> Which it turned out to be. And Jackie says, I think I've lost some of my allure. I said, no, just wait a second. And they finish and she turns the corner and suddenly, Jackie, Jackie, Jackie. You know, all the photographers are calling her over. The, next time, we, the next time we talk, Dick, too, I want to ask you about, I mean, you were you witnessed Hollywood at its at its highest point. I mean, and all the old restaurants and clubs. I want to ask you about next time we talk about Romanoff's and, and Billy Wilder's restaurant, uh, the, the, the Bistro and Ciro's and all of that well, stuff, too. Uh, most of all, the Hollywood Brown Derby. That's where And Hollywood the Brown came. Derby. And, and Chasen's. My, and, but my daughter has an apartment building that's on the side of the Hollywood Brown Derby. Wow. It's, it's very famous, 1600 Vine. Yeah, sure. And, uh, and I said to her, you know, you're obligated to help me celebrate and bring Hollywood back to Hollywood. So she hosts... The 1600 Vine hosts the Made in Hollywood honors that we have every Oscar. Any film that's nominated for the Oscars that was made here, there aren't many, is uh, is accorded the Made in, uh, the Los Angeles City Council gives the Made in Hollywood honor. And the same thing for uh, Emmy-nominated uh, television fair. But that all takes place and everybody's very aware this was where the Brown Derby, this is where – Yep. Uh, Lucille Ball stalked Bill Holden. William Holden. Sure. <laughs> I, when I got out to L.A., everything was gone. I mean, I went to Nicodell's, and of course, Musso's yeah. was still there, but the Derby there. was gone, and Jason's was all but gone. It's it's sad. It's a, it's a really a lost era. What's in the book? Yes. I, I, I tried to. <laughs> yes. The book is Star Flacker. Gil? Yes. I want to take them for a walk through Hollywood. Star Flacker, Inside the Golden Age of Hollywood by Dick Gutman. Not Casper Gutman. Yeah. <laughs> I like talking to a man who likes to talk. <laughs> I, would, I was doing, I handled a lot of John Huston's films. And um, the last one, we had arranged for him to get the Santa Fe Film Festival Award. And so we had a press conference for him about that, the last press conference he did. And at the festival, they were going to have a ball where you came as your favorite, disguised as your favorite character from his films. So we were about to go on, and I and he said, um, 
And so, Mr. Gutman, um, what do you plan to, uh, to how do you plan to attire yourself uh, at the uh, the ball? I said, with my driver's license. He said, yes, yes, of course. <laughs> <laughs> you knew them all, Dick. You knew them all. They were they, they were all great. You're a cookie full of arsenic, Sydney. <laughs> <laughs> Dick, Dick, I'll send you some links to some episodes of this show I think you'll get a kick out of. Yeah, no, I'm I'm anxious to have some of my people. This is fun. Yeah, it's a thrill for us. So thanks for doing it. And and his book again is... uh, It's there. (laughs) Yeah, Star Flacker. That's it. Inside the Golden Age of Hollywood. Thank you so much, Dick Gutman. How much fun this was. Thank you. Thank you, Dick. We'll see you again, okay? Thank you. Hey, you made the mistake of not turning off your podcast in time, so now you have to hear this cross-promotion for Hello from the Magic Tavern, a weekly podcast in the magical land of Foon, hosted by me, a human from Chicago. And me, Usador, wizard of the 12th realm of Ephesius. And me, Chunt. I'm a shapeshifter, but I'm mostly a badger. But I guess I've also been an alligator and a tiny horse with a top hat. If you want to fully improvise comedy fantasy epic, this is the show for you. You can start at the beginning and binge your way all the way up to episode 100, or honestly, just jump in on a new episode. It's not the wire you'll get it i join us and we shall entertain thee hour after hour or and o'er. also speaking of the wire who's stringer bell again wait which one whistles i don't want to talk about earth stuff <laughs>